This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back, everyone. We're so happy to uh, do another Pain Refrain recap. And we had a couple of just incredible episodes that came out even since before our last Q&A session. So Tim and I just want to take a few minutes and chat about a couple of key points and then talk about, about a paper that Tim and colleagues did recently. So Tim, great to have you here, man. It's kind of a Oftentimes we announce beautiful weather when we're both in Fort Collins, but right now I'm not sure what's going on on your side of I-25, but I've got kind of a blowing snow. Well, we have just a very light dusting coming down and the skies are, they're gray, they're snow, snow covered. And I guess that means that the mountains have been doing pretty well this year. Yeah, I've been tracking that. They've been doing quite nicely. My wife and I were just talking about how we've got to get a few more days in before the season comes to an end. Yeah, indeed. I have some days later this month because it's not been as many turns as my mind requires per year. Yes, yes. Well, Tim, we have obviously had a number of really awesome episodes since last time we chatted. We had Adrian on the show again. We were able to talk with him. But the two individuals I wanted to kind of bring up a few points before we jump into the case study, just because I thought the episode with Ted Jones, um, Dr. Ted Jones, psychologist out of Knoxville, Tennessee, an area that you and I spend quite a bit of time with our South College duties, brought up something that I just loved hearing from a physician that I wanted to kind of put out there to the group. And that was as we discussed the whole evolution of pain education and pain intervention, you know, Dr. Jones talked about the importance of psychoeducation and that when somebody feels something or hears something, I think he actually referenced, you know, someone gets a pop in their neck or something that in really no way signifies significant tissue damage, just the importance of somebody being there to decatastrophize and give an explanation for why the symptoms might be there. He talked about myofascial pain, but his point was really just all of us, whoever kind of engages with that person first, de-escalating. And I, I know you and I make that point a lot. I just thought it was great to hear a physician who's been in the pain space for, for decades discussing the importance of that. Yeah, and Dr. Jones is actually a psychologist, but works in a multidisciplinary pain clinic right alongside a number of physicians and a lot of interventional pain specialists. So it appears that their clinic has really tried to de-emphasize the intervention side of it in their environment. But it was so interesting you bring that up as the first point because literally last week I had an email from a client who was describing just concern when she was rolling over in bed that her back was popping and she was worried about this and this seemed to be coming back, this popping. And she wasn't really talking about her pain increasing, but the popping was increasing. And again, that whole idea that is alarming to the system. And when I get those emails or those calls, those are the ones where I think it's so important that we intervene immediately or as quickly as possible to de-escalate the situation, to talk through, tell me more about this and to make sure that patients aren't alarmed by those things. Tim, I've got to ask you, I've never been in the clinic when a patient asked you this question and certainly we get it all the time. When you're examining that patient's neck and that individual's middle age or a little beyond and maybe they've had some previous radiographs with findings that are disconcerting for them, and they do hear these noises when they turn their neck side to side. It doesn't matter, Tim, if it's a neck, a low back, a kneecap. I mean, we hear this all the time, the patient who says, Jeff, Tim, what about this noise in my neck? You know, what do you think that is? I'm really curious, what is your kind of standard narrative 
to relate to that person in that space. I have more than one narrative today. <laughs> yeah. I'll go the easier one first is one of our clinics where I practice near the university. So we have a lot of highly educated folks. I see a lot of engineers actually and folks that are in the science space. Those folks, I kind of launch into those old studies of hey, that's an interesting question. They've actually looked at that. What we think, if you pull your finger and I'll pull my finger and make it click and say, it appears to be that there is a change in what happens within the joint during that time. So there is something happening when that noise occurs, but we've actually studied this and we've actually looked at people's backs and listening for sounds during treatment when providing manipulation and what's fascinating, whether a sound occurs or not, it's not related to the outcome or of treatment or how patients do. So we just like to say noise happens. So that's kind of my story for the engineer folks. And then sometimes it gets even deeper than that. The beauty of getting older as a therapist, your body, I can create noise more just because it just happens. And so I can relate the fact that, again, it's normal that that happens. And it's, again, been studied a lot because people are curious about that. And the good news is it really is not related to pain or disability. Some people make a lot of noise. And what's fascinating you might find is sometimes you go through months where you're pretty noisy and then other months where you're not noisy. So take it for what it's worth. One thing, Tim, I see a lot when I'm mentoring folks around the country, especially younger therapists who are sometimes concerned they're not going to find the problem, if you will, during their evaluation. I see them occasionally jump on that noise because the patient believes that's part of the source of the issue. And so the therapist can go with that and say, oh yeah, that does sound kind of nasty. And you know, we can work on that. I guess I would caution therapists who are kind of excited that maybe they found a quote unquote cause to take those noises and really attach them to what's going on symptom behavior wise, because at least in my experience, I don't see a huge change in noise very often, but you do see a dramatic change in symptoms. So I think even though early on, it feels like, Ooh, this is going to increase patient confidence. I think that if the noise then doesn't change, even as the symptoms are resolving, I think you've got a little bit of a discrepancy you're up against. I guess I would caution against that. I would just jump on that, even if the noise does resolve, but then it comes back mm -hmm. without symptoms, then something's wrong, right? The noise is coming back, therefore I'm, there's something wrong with me. And that goes right back to what Dr. Jones was talking about with now they hear this noise and you've told them that was associated with the issue earlier and now we've got catastrophizing and boom, we're off and running. Yep. Tim, one thing I wanted to mention that Dr. Jones, just so that our listeners are aware, I mean, at the end of the episode, he very sincerely was looking for a rehab specialist to join his team. And I, I hope that people realize we're not jumping through hoops here. I mean, these are real people out there in the world solving real problems. And I hope that our listeners take these folks up on it and shoot emails if there's any interest in joining a multidisciplinary team of folks who are trying to do it well, because these are real for real clinics out there in the trenches trying to make a change. And I hope our listeners use some of these contacts to advance their career. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. And, and think about where he's practicing in one of the high opioid use states in the country and very challenging clientele, yet in a space and an environment where there are these voices of reason and voices that are really trying to make a difference and find new ways of getting ourselves out of this epidemic that we're currently in. Absolutely. 
One other thing I want to mention, Tim, before we chat about your case report briefly, I just want to thank Sharon Dunn for coming on the show. I mean, Sharon has been such a terrific leader for our profession, and I know she has 12 million things going on. So the fact that she carved out some time for you and I and her to sit down and chat was huge. And for the listeners who didn't catch the episode, we asked Sharon a lot of questions about what do we need to do? She's in such a great position to know what can we do as individuals to advance the profession to make their position better when they're at these meetings where policies are being created and things are moving and shaking. But it was neat to hear Sharon say, what we need is public awareness. Like you guys have got to get louder. We're so used to sitting in our clinics and waiting for patients to roll in. And while it's fine to do that, things are never going to change until we bring the message to the public. That was heard loud and clear by me. And it kind of goes to this, this idea where often, at least in my experience, a lot of rehab providers that grew up in the traditional way of doing business, it's almost like when we see other types of industries, whether it be in the fitness industry, marketing heavily, we almost have a negative response to that marketing, right? And yet here, these people are marketing health. (laughs) They're not competition, they're marketing health. The DNA of most, at least on the physical therapy side, the DNA is not such to be loud outside of our space or room that we're working in. And frankly, we are called to be loud. I mean, we, there's never been greater need for us to be saying what we do, in, especially in this management of chronic pain. Absolutely. And Tim, I do take to heart some people's concerns of us saying get PT first and that PT is better than competing options or other healthcare providers is kind of like an overarching statement. Like I appreciate that there's some sensitivities there, but what I don't think is wrong is us reflecting evidence that seeing a physical therapist first when you have an episode of back pain reduces opioid prescriptions by 89% and letting the public know of some of the evidence-driven results that take place when you do consult with a physical therapist for musculoskeletal pain, that I don't think is outside of the wheelhouse. Again, I always say you can always take the extreme of any position, but if I just step back and look at the volume of pharmaceutical industry marketing on TV day in, day out, on radio, on social media. Here, marketing, quote unquote, solutions with minimal reward and high risk Mm -hmm. and thinking nothing about doing that with the profit margins that are obscene. If you saw the recent piece in the New York Times talking again about the profit margins on these companies, and yet we're kind of worried and yelling at each other, oh, that's too aggressive. You're too self-serving. And I just, I struggle with that. Again, it's clearly you can oversell things, but I often say if you're overselling things with low risk, then at least you can sleep at night versus those overselling things with high risk and low reward. Tim, I do sometimes think, man, that silence Silence is an action. I mean, choosing to remain silent when you're aware of research that suggests that things should go one pathway, at least in certain cases, that is making a statement. I think sometimes that's the wrong statement in this case. Well, here's a great example, right? You're out with friends and somebody you meet fairly soon on says something about an ache or pain. Many of us soft sell or not really push some conservative treatments. I mean, it's almost like we don't 
mention that. And I've switched that around. I basically say, well, the first thing you do not want to do is make this problem worse by over-treating it with pharmaceutical and surgical interventions. Let's slow this train down and let's have you see, I don't tell them to see me. I just encourage them to see someone that's competent in conservative musculoskeletal care and start there. Don't start by, I got my specialty visit next week. And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, that's, that's when we know who you see first largely will determine your trajectory. Absolutely. I hope folks realize that president of our association, when asked what we can do, that was kind of our forefront thought was get out there and let folks know what we offer. So I hope everybody takes that to heart. Tim, I want to switch gears a little bit because you guys had an awesome case report. Um, I just read it, loved going through it. Can you give a little bit of background on the use of virtual reality to treat chronic pain? I have worn the headset, so I've seen you in hologram form talking at me down in North Carolina. So can you give our listeners kind of a little background there and, and dive in and just chat a bit about what you all did and found? This was a case report on pain neuroscience education using virtual reality. Actually, the lead author was Adrian Lowe and Colleen Lowe, and I was a senior author on that paper. And it was published recently in Pain and Rehabilitation, which is the Journal of Physiotherapy Pain Association. And essentially what it was, it was really a as a proof of concept in terms of a case report describing the use of the virtual reality program in the management of a 18-year-old high school uh, female that had actually suffered a motor vehicle collision about 10 months previous and had been going through a variety of different physical therapy types approaches without any improvement. So essentially, the idea is using virtual reality to provide pain neuroscience education. And the virtual reality has been used in a number of different healthcare spaces in terms of particularly like in anxiety and treatment of smoking cessation. It's out there and of course growing exponentially in a lot of different areas. But this really, the idea is when you have headsets on and you're in kind of immersed in a different space, your focus goes up. The patient or the experience of the person in there, you tend to really be pulled away outside of your normal space of us talking to each other like we are now. The idea that it may be more effective, more efficient way to get information and change across. In this example, it really just describes the series of delivery of that. And it was really three sessions delivered over a week apart. And the sessions aren't long. The first session is about 15 minutes. And that really introduces patients to that idea of a sensitive alarm system and also that you're not alone. A patient really describing how she used the understanding of how pain worked and through basic breathing exercises made a difference in her life. And then the second session goes into recapping this idea of a sensitive nervous system and then really strategies to dampen it down, of course, using movement-based strategies and mindfulness-based strategies. And then finally, the third session takes a little longer, about 26 minutes. It really goes through, again, reviewing this idea of the sensitive alarm system and then the strategies so far you've used 
for dampening it down. And then it kind of moves into a little bit more of education and the importance of sleep hygiene in pain management. And again, another mindfulness-based session. That's kind of the idea of the treatment. So it's kind of a way to provide patients with uh, neuroscience education. We showed the results both in terms of neck disability index improving, but the interesting things are pain catastrophizing going down significantly, pain reducing as well, but also changes in pressure pain threshold, both in the neck and in distal areas of the body. So again, a case report does not provide high level evidence, but it was a good proof of concept of using this as a tool in the clinic. Well, Tim, I'll tell you two things I love about it. I was really thankful to have the opportunity to try it when I was down with Jeff Hathaway and the crew down there at Breakthrough. And I tell you, the first thing I love is that I think it normalizes pain science education and it gets it done because let's be really honest. And a lot of my students are, as I travel around and teach, people love the idea, but therapeutic neuroscience education in a formal format it isn't being done as often as we'd like to think it is because it's a challenging conversation. It's emotional. It's relatively complex. It's hard to figure out where, how to meet the patient where they are. But boy, if you can say, you know, hey, Joanne, the way that we start all of our sessions is we make sure everyone understands pain before we dive into trying to solve it. And so everybody starts with this. That gives you that perspective. And now, Number one, everyone's getting that education. And then number two, it makes the conversation consistent across the clinic. So, I mean, if another provider sees that patient, they can reference, well, hey, do you remember that security alarm system and how that worked? And everyone now kind of has that reference standard, that criteria. And I think that just that consistency of language is huge. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's consistency of language. And if a clinic adopts that model, you just, you know that everybody in the clinic goes through it from the front desk to the providers, normalizes things. Again, it's the confusing messages often we're we're getting that, again, if you've been in persistent pain for years and you've given 10 to 20 different reasons why you hurt, uh, as we've had patients say, you know, you're basically say, well, clearly nobody knows. So this must be really serious if nobody can figure this out. And I think that's where, again, understanding what's going on and people consistently providing that message really allows a normalization to occur again and really hope to be restored in someone that's been suffering for a long period of time. Tim, do you have any, and I'm sure we could get Larry back on the show or get Jeff on the show, but do you have any pulse at all on how realistic implementing that system is? I know they're doing a great job inside a breakthrough. Is that becoming realistic for your average outpatient practice of a couple locations cost-wise, or even is it available at this point, or do you have any clue where that's at? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeff. I think that indeed it's gotten to the point where it's totally ready for clinic delivery. If you go to behave r.com it's actually b e h a v r.com and that has the platform has information about the virtual reality space and shows some examples and you can get information there so it's behave that's b e h a v r.com in terms of how delivery is it's done in shorter enough sequences that during a typical encounter, you could have the patient sitting in your clinic room would be ideal. A little quieter space would be ideal. And you could then, after examining the patient, you place those on 
complete your note and then move on. And then you may say, you know, why don't you come in a little bit earlier next time? We're going to have you go to the second phase. So there's lots of ways that you can implement it into the clinical practice and with relatively short amounts of time. And the nice thing is it measures outcomes within their profile. So you can actually be measuring how they're doing based on their encounter with virtual reality. That's awesome. Well, congrats on the article, Tim. So cool that Colleen and Adrian and yourself were able to collaborate on that. Like you said, we know it's a case report, but that's kind of where things start is showing that it seems to have some merit and we can look at it further. And as it gets more widespread, excited to watch that one more avenue to implement all that we're talking about actually into patient care. Well, thank you, Jeff. Cool. Well, Tim, that's a wrap, man. Great chat with you. I know for our listeners, we've got a ton of great things coming up. We're going to get some more patients on the show. We've had some good requests to get more stories out there about how people are coping with and dealing with their own chronic pain. So we'll certainly do that. As always, thanks to Adrian and ISPI for sponsoring the show. ISP Institute, of course, is their website where all of the courses are housed. A Lion Conference is, is literally right around the corner. So many questions about that coming up. So a great group of speakers, and that's going to be a heck of an event. So Tim, lots of great things in the forecast. There are indeed, Jeff, and I just always enjoy having this time to chat with you, and I hope all of our listeners have a most exceptional week. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.